0: You good? Good? All right. Good evening. I'm pretty excited. Um, so we got through Revelation. I know some of you haven't been here, you guys, um, and Karen missed last week. So we got through Revelation. We've been going through Genesis in sort of an overview. We looked at Genesis um, as sort of four big events and then four main characters. So The four big events are the flood, or I'm sorry, creation, Uh, Fall, the flood, and then the beginning of nations, which is the Tower of Babel. So now we're starting the next section, which is really the beginning of the Israelite nation. And everything now is focused on the descendants of Shem and the the Shemite people, uh, which Abraham is a descendant of Shem. And eventually you get to Jacob and the Israelites um, as a descendant of Abraham. So that's where we're going to be today. Because we're doing this in more of an overview fashion, each of the events, the major events, the first four events were smaller chunks of scripture, but the next, really the rest of the time, we're going to be dealing with large portions um, of the story. So it's not going to be quite as verse by verse. You're going to get some narrative from me in the middle of it, Uh, and we're going to kind of zoom in on things that point to the overarching point of scripture and uh, tell the story that God is unfolding for us. So, Father God, thank you for this opportunity. As we get together, study your word, understand your story uh, that is unfolding and what you're trying to present to us, what the what the point of Scripture is trying to get through to us. Help us as we understand you and your plan better, and we see how the whole story fits together. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this opportunity as we open up. The story of Abraham. I ask that your spirit would be with us tonight as we seek to learn and understand you deeper. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, the story of Abraham, we finished in chapter 12 last week because the story of Abraham is sort of the last descendant of Shem that gets pointed out. And from that point forward, the narrative follows Abraham and his descendants uh, and the people of Israel. But we're going to start back at chapter or verse 1 in chapter 12 to open up the story of Abraham and sort of learn what God is trying to tell us. As we go through this story, we're going to zoom in on a few pieces of Scripture and, and highlight a few parts of the text that really explain what God is, is telling us to do. But as we've opened up the Scriptures thus far, we've learned some really interesting things that God is narrowing the picture about who the Messiah is, starting in Genesis 1, and just narrowing the picture. And so we started with, in chapter 1, you see, or in chapter 2, I should say, on the seventh day, God rested. And the interesting thing about that is the seventh day of the week would be Saturday, which is the day Jesus was in the grave. And so even there, in the beginning of creation, you see a picture of Christ. And then after the fall of man, you see... God talking to the serpent and pointing out that there will be a seed from Eve who is the redeemer who crushes the head of the serpent, but his, his heel will be bruised in the process. And that is the first prophecy of Jesus. And so as that story unfolded, we saw Cain and Abel and how Eve actually named Cain, like this, this man I acquired from God, assuming that he was going to be the one who redeemed people, but he ended up being the first murderer because he was tempted by Satan. And in so doing, the story changed not from Cain and Abel, but to the appointed one, Seth. And so we now know that Seth is the is the line from which Jesus will come from or the Messiah will come from. And that story keeps getting narrower and narrower, as in Genesis 10 and 11, the line of Shem are, is the one that's highlighted. And in the line of Shem comes... Last, Abraham. And Abraham is now highlighted. We now know through Abraham, all of the nations will be blessed. So we're seeing the picture get narrow, get narrower, and God is showing us slowly who the Messiah will be. So let's open it up. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. So as we're looking to see who the Messiah is, the picture is getting narrower as we see all peoples will be blessed through the line of Abraham. So we now know it'll be one of his descendants. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. He, Abraham, was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abraham, or Abram, took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they're going from Mesopotamia, which is Ur of the Chaldees in the scripture, but Mesopotamia or Babylon or modern-day Iraq, they're heading from there, and they went north to Haran, which is still in Mesopotamia, but it's in the northern part between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. And now they're headed to the land of Canaan, which is modern day Israel. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the Terebinth tree of Moreh. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar. As the Lord had appeared in him, and he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord, called on the name of the Lord, so Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. So Abram, in this conversation with God, as he's traveling to the land of Canaan, he gets there, and God promises him this land for his descendants. So the promise has been given, but the covenant hasn't been made yet. But as Abram is in Canaan, the promise is given to him that this will be the land for God's chosen people, the descendants of Abram. But while he's there, there is a famine in the land. And so he travels out of the land of Canaan, which is modern day Israel, to Egypt. So he leaves Israel, heads to Egypt to escape the famine. While he's there, he tells a bit of a lie. He says that his wife, Sarai, is not his wife, but his sister. It's a part of a lie. It's a lie of omission because Sarai was actually related to Abram, but he didn't tell the full truth. And in doing so, Pharaoh, because Sarai was so beautiful, she want, which is why Abraham, Abram was afraid because Sarai was so beautiful that He was afraid he would lose his life on account of her being so beautiful and them wanting to take her away from him. So he lied, said, Sarai is my sister. And so they took Sarai away from Abram. But in the midst of that happening, plagues were put on Pharaoh's household until he realized what he had done wrong. And God sort of fixes this. Now, the interesting thing about this is in the future, as we'll see in in a couple of chapters, Abram is promised that his descendants will be enslaved in a land for 400 years, and taken out of their country, enslaved in a land for 400 years, and prophesied. And then when they get out of that country, they will be given riches. And so Abram here is living out a small piece of what the future looks like for his descendants. He leaves the land of Canaan, just like Jacob eventually did with Joseph as we get to the end of Genesis. And he goes down to Egypt to escape famine, much like Jacob and his family did. And then after Joseph dies, the people get enslaved for 400 years until the arrival of Moses. So you see a small picture of that in the end of chapter 12. But then you get to chapter 13. And Abram is now moving back into the land because he's left Egypt. And then there's a little bit of a fight between him and his nephew. So Lot is with Abram, but because God has blessed Abram so much and Lot is with him, they both have a lot of stuff. They have a lot of wealth. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of animals. They have a lot of livestock and it becomes too difficult for them to be working together. So they have a bit of a fight. Um, and basically Abram says, do what you want. Lot, take any of the land, go where you want to go. I just want to be at peace with you. And Lot, being a little bit greedy, looks around, and he sees where the best place is, and he sees Sodom and Gomorrah, and he goes there. But that's where we pick up in verse 14 of chapter 13. So Lot has chosen to go after the nice place, and this is what God says. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look to the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I will give to you, And your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land, through its length and its width, for I will give it to you. So Abram's in Canaan, the eventual place where his descendants are promised, the promised land. And God says, look to north, the south, the east, and the west. All of this land, I promise you, I'm going to give you. So God is reiterating his promise to Abram. And then something interesting happens. There's a king in chapter uh, 14. There's a king named Keterleomer. Keterleomer is actually, he's sort of like a really mighty king. There's a bunch of other kings that serve underneath him. Think of a feudalist system where there's a bunch of lords that report to the main monarch. Keterleomer is like the main monarch, and there's a bunch of different ethnic groups that serve under Keterleomer. And the scripture actually says this, the king, uh, 12 years they served Keterleomer, and in the 13th year they rebelled. And so who rebelled? Well, there was a group of descendants of Ham, who were descendant, direct descendants from Noah. Ham was one of Noah's sons. And then direct descendants of Shem, so another one of Noah's sons. And they grouped together to be serving underneath Cutter Laomer. But in the 13th year of Cutter Laomer's reign, there was sort of a civil war that broke out. And he fights back. And he ultimately ends up winning this war. But why is this even mentioned? This is mentioned because during this upheaval and during this war, Cutter Laomer captures Lot and his family. And Abram finds out about it. And he goes to rescue Lot. And he performs sort of guerrilla warfare tactics. And he rescues Lot. But even after rescuing Lot, Lot decides to still stay in Sodom and Gomorrah. But right after this war is over, even though Keter Laomer has kept his reign intact, he's lost to Abram and he's lost Lot and his family. Immediately after that, we see in verse 17 of chapter 14, a very unique individual enters the story. So this is verse 17, chapter 14. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kedar Laomer and the kings who were with him. So the king of Sodom is going to meet Abram because of Abram's victory and rescuing Lot. But in the midst of all of that happening, Verse 18 happens. It says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought you bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. So he gave gave him a tenth of all of his possessions. Abram gave a tenth of all of his possessions to the king of Salem, Melchizedek. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Um, And then there's sort of a a little back and forth between the king of Sodom and Abram. Um, So there's this little piece in between that before the king of Sodom speaks that deals with this guy, Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. Melech is king and Zedek means righteous and his name means king of righteousness. He's also the king of Salem, which historically before it became Jerusalem was called Salem. It was the city of peace. So Melchizedek is the king of righteousness, the king of peace, in the city of Jerusalem, of the promised land, and he shows up out of nowhere. And what does he do? He offers Abram bread and wine. Now, alarm bells should be going off in your head because this is just like Jesus at the Last Supper. And then after this, Abram decides to tithe to Melchizedek, to give a tenth of his possessions to Melchizedek. Um, this should tell you that Abram, although he is the great father of the faith, saw Melchizedek as someone who was greater than him. And to even point that out further, Melchizedek blesses Abram. That that who is greater blesses that who is lesser. That's why as you read through Genesis and the patriarchs, at the end of their life, they always bless their children because they're handing off their inheritance. So, Melchizedek is greater. So Melchizedek shows up in a few other places in Scripture, and he turns out to be a very interesting character. There's a little bit of an argument about Melchizedek, whether or not he is just a typology, meaning he's a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament, but he's an actual historical person, or is this Jesus actually showing up physically in the Old Testament? Um, I'll tell you what I think as we get to the end of it. Um, because it might not be what you think, I think. So, But he does show up again, starting in Psalm 110. And this is Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. I would write that, that scripture reference down if you want to check it out later. But the first verse is, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now that's a verse that Jesus directly quotes when he is combated by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they try to trick him. And then Jesus responds to their questions. And then Jesus asks them a question. And he says, Who's, who, who is the Messiah? Like whose son is the Messiah? So who is the father of the Messiah basically is the question. And they respond, David. And then Jesus says, well, what can you tell me about this? Because Jesus, or David wrote Psalm 110. And he starts it out by saying, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is clearly talking, this is a messianic psalm talking about the coming Messiah. And David refers to the Messiah as his Lord. Which, if he's only a descendant of David, would not make sense. And so it actually tells us in the scriptures that the Pharisees and the Sadducees could not answer the question. And they no longer questioned Jesus because they were afraid of questioning him. Because his answers were were too good. They couldn't take it. They couldn't take the heat. This is a messianic psalm. And it starts out with something that Jesus points out. That tells us that scripture is maybe a little bit more profound. And a little bit more wonderful than we ever thought it could have been. David has a descendant in Jesus. Jesus is a physical descendant of of David through Mary. But Jesus also says before Abraham was, I am. Jesus pre-existed. David, and Abraham, and is above them all. And so, and John the Baptist talks about this a little bit too, when he talks about Jesus and he says that there is one who is coming after me, but he came before me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Because Jesus, though he is a physical human being, he also preexisted all. And so, the only way for this to be fulfilled is through a physical descendant who is also divine. And so, Jesus points this out. But then the rest of the first four verses of this psalm go like this. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter to rule in the midst of your enemies. So you know we're talking about a king. We're talking about a king and a king, a descendant of David, a king. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the coming Messiah will not only just be a king, but a priest. And what was Melchizedek? The king of Salem and the priest of God most high. And in ancient civilizations, the kings and the priesthood were always separate. So Melchizedek is very unique in this regard. And it's also unique for Jesus to be both a king, a descendant of David, and a priest, a high priest. And we'll explain why that matters as we go into Hebrews. Now, it's he's mentioned again in Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to skip that um, for time's sake and go into Hebrews 7 because it's more, more of an expounding on this understanding. So this is verses 1 through 17 in Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem... Priest of the Most High God met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy. Having neither beginning nor days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So in the story of Melchizedek, you don't see a genealogy. You don't know who his father is. You don't know who his mother is. And so in the scriptures, he's painted without a beginning or an end. That's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at, who I think might be Paul. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the laws to take tithes from the people. That is, from their brothers, through these are also descended from Abraham. So the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the descendants of Aaron, receive tithes from the people of Israel. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, the Levites are descendants of Abraham, so they are not greater than Abraham, but Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek's priesthood is even greater than that of the Levites. But this man who does not have his de- his descent from the received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So he's basically he's restating the point that Melchizedek is even greater than Abraham. So even the Levitical priesthood doesn't measure up. Because they're less than Abraham. Melchizedek is greater than even the Levitical priesthood. Which was the priesthood that existed in the biblical time. Now if perfection had been unattainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further would there need to have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So now he's asking the question, if the priesthood of of Levi is under Abram, it's not as good as Abraham, and Melchizedek is better, then what's the point here? Because... Why is there arising a priesthood out of Melchizedek? Why are the Why is the Levitical priesthood not good enough for us? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection. With that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness to him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So at the end of that section, Hebrews 7, they again quote from Psalms 10. So the writer of Hebrews is pointing this out. The Levitical priesthood points to something. The Levitical priesthood points to the ultimate Messiah, but the Messiah can't be from the Levites. He has to be from David. He has to come from the line of Judah. But he's also prophesied to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which means he's greater than the Levitical priesthood. So he is able to fulfill both of those roles, king and priest, And Jesus is unique in that way. So what do I think in terms of Melchizedek? Who is he? Is he a real historical character? Is he a picture that's just a picture of Christ? Or is he actually Christ showing up in the Old Testament? So um, I've actually changed my mind about this in recent times. I actually, I used to think that this was Jesus showing up in the Old Testament physically. Um, And we'll get into some of that tonight. I actually think that Melchizedek was a historical king of Salem. And I think there's something really unique about what Hebrews tells us. Hebrews tells us that there's no genealogy of Melchizedek, that there's no, we don't know who his father or his mother is, that there's no beginning or no end. So what I think is happening there is the writer of Hebrews is saying, pay attention to what isn't being told. Because God is using the scriptures and the history, and he's telling the story selectively so that you can see a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. It gets much harder to argue the other. It gets much harder to argue that this is actually a Christophany. But if you can show that there's actually something about the pictures in the Old Testament then what ultimately the writer of Hebrews is telling us is as we read the Old Testament, look for patterns that start to make sense. And when things are missing like a genealogy for a King who happens to be the King of righteousness, the King of peace, the King of Jerusalem who offers bread and wine just like Jesus did. And then the details of his life that are omitted make him look more like a picture of Christ. That's on purpose. Because God is wanting to paint you a picture of who the Messiah is ultimately going to be and not bog you down with details that don't matter. So that's what I think. And there we move to chapter 15. Now chapter 15 is where we get the covenant. And it starts out by saying this, after these things, so after the the deal with the king of Salem and the king of Sodom, After these things, word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So Abram just won a battle. He had this really cool experience with Melchizedek. And now God is reassuring him, saying, I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And he's telling him, my promise is going to be fulfilled through you. But Abram has a little bit of a back and forth with God here where he says, hey, I don't have any kids. My nephew Lot isn't here anymore. All I have is my servant Eleazar. Is he supposed to be the one that I bless and give this stuff to? And God says, no. And the story picks up in verse seven. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, God said to Abram, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he, he brought all of these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, and he did not cut the birds in two. Uh, and when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. That's important. Abram was asleep, uh, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly, this is while Abram's asleep. Know certainly that all your that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. This is the prophecy of the slavery of Egypt. And the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So at the end of this, Abram's getting a prophecy about his future descendants. They will be called out of the land of Canaan that they are to inherit, be called to a land that's not theirs. They will be there for 400 years and suffer affliction. But at the end of it, God will deal with that, punish those who enslave them, and they will walk out of there with a a lot of goodies. But the beginning of this is very interesting. Abram's looking for some sort of certainty. How do I know that you're going to keep your promise to me? So they take some animals and they cut them in half down the middle and then split them open side by side with, a, with a, an area to walk through in the middle. Now, this is important because this is actually customary to the Middle Bronze Age where Abraham lived. And so what would happen is you would cut animals in half and put, put them on one opposite side of each other. And, and when you made an agreement, you would walk through the cut open animals as a mutual agreement to say, if you don't follow through on this agreement, this is what's going to happen to you. So this was a custom of the Middle Bronze Age at the time Abraham was alive. Now this is important because there are some skeptics who will ask the question about when was the book of Genesis really written? Was it really written by Moses? Was it really written back then? Was it really divinely inspired? Um, But we didn't know about these customs until modern history, when we uncovered things like the Hammurabi Code. And so Abram is being described in the Middle Bronze Age and the customs of the Middle Bronze Age that didn't exist in Moses' time or in the time after. So the only way Moses could have known this, written this down, is through divine inspiration because the records of this were buried until modern times. So this shows that this is divinely inspired and likely written in an ancient time that would have made more sense for them to understand the customs, as opposed to being written shortly before the Septuagint was formed um, to avoid all of the problems with prophecy being so accurate for those who are skeptics of scripture. This goes to show you that there's a lot of accuracy. So an ancient custom is described here, but there's something different that happens and it's really, really important because normally both parties would walk through the animals because it would be, conditional for both parties to fulfill their part of the agreement. But this is what happens. Verse 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river The river Euphrates. So only God walked through the pieces. Abram did not. This is essential to understanding the rest of scripture and Israel's role in it. Because Abram had nothing to do with this promise being fulfilled. Only God walked through the animals, so only God is the one who has to fulfill his promise. So Abram or his descendants can do nothing to break this promise. This land belongs to Abram's descendants, and it can't be broken on Abram's side. It's called an unconditional covenant. And so only God has to fulfill the requirement. And since God is a promise keeper, you can bet that he will. So this annihilates replacement theology and that the church has replaced Israel with the promises because the direct descendants of Abraham are the Israelites. And that land belongs to them. And this right here shows that it's an unconditional covenant that God will not break to the people of Israel. So next we have um, this promise was given to Abram. He's going to have a son. He now knows it. It's been agreed upon. But Sarai says, all right, I know God wants to do this for us, but I'm really old. So I'm going to help God out. And uh, I'm going to give you my handmaid, Hagar, and you can have her And she'll have a son for you to build your nation on that God promised you because that's what God needs, our help. Um, That doesn't go over so well with God because when Abram was 99 years old, as we pick up in chapter 17, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in this generation. For an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan and everlasting possession. I will be there. God. So God is saying, I have made this promise. I will establish you in an everlasting covenant with you. But this is really funny. If, if you don't think God has a sense of humor, you haven't read this passage. Because, first of all, Abram is an old man. He's in his 90s. And his name, Abram, means exalted father. So that's kind of disappointing for Abram, who's promised to be a father of a great nation. And then God, while, while Abram is still childless, changes his name from exalted father to Abraham, while he's still childless to father of a great multitude. Father of a great multitude to a childless 99-year-old man. Um, So God's funny. That's the point of that. And God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. So he changes Abram's name from exalted father to father of a great multitude while they're still childless. And then he changes Sarah's name, or Sarai, which means she strives to Sarah, which means princess. So that's pretty, that's pretty nice. I will, and he says, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her through Sarah. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall come, uh, shall be from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed, stupid, and said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, because he thinks God needs his help, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So Abraham Abraham is now like, God, you need my help. Look, listen, I don't think you understand the deal here. I'm 100, Sarah's 90. I don't think you understand how this works, God. So how about Ishmael? He's already born. Um, Then God said, no. I like to end it there because I think, Then God said, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which, by the way, means laughter. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Now, the promise is through Isaac. This you can really prove in the next couple of chapters. So Ishmael, when he was... Verse 25 says, When Ishmael was 13 years old, he was circumcised. That matters. But Israel, or uh, Isaac, is the promised son. Laughter is the promised son. So God comes to Abraham again and he points this out that Sarah is going to have a son. This promise is, is through that son that you're going to name Isaac. Sarah is going to have a son. Uh, this time, Sarah is near. And instead of Abraham laughing, Sarah laughs. And God doesn't think that's funny. Um, so he confronts her about it, and that's sort of the whole deal. She's going to name him Isaac, and she now understands. But right after that, God starts talking to Abram or Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah, which is where his nephew Lot is. Now Abraham's sad. He's like, "I love my nephew. Why are you going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Because it's just filled with just wretched depravity and sin." And so God. God has sort of a little bargaining back and forth with Abraham. And Abraham starts with 50 people. He says, hey, God, if there's 50 people in Sodom that are righteous, will you spare this, the whole city? And God says, sure, there's 50 people. I'll spare the whole city if I can find 50 righteous people. And then Abraham's like, well, all right, God took that deal. What if I get a little bit bolder? How about, what if it's five less than that? What if it's 45? Like, you, if you're looking for 50 people and you find 45, God, you're not going to destroy the whole city because five difference, right? And God says, no, if I find 45, I won't destroy the whole city. And he says, what about 40? And Abraham works God all the way down to 10 people. He says, if you find just 10 righteous people in the entire city of Sodom and Gomorrah, will you spare the city? And uh, God says, sure. If I find 10 righteous people who are redeemable in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, I won't destroy the city. What happens? God searches. He finds nobody except Lot And so he destroys the city, but he actually carries the righteous one. He removes Lot from the destruction before it happens. Lot, a Gentile, not a descendant of Abraham. Abraham's nephew was removed. A Gentile removed from the destruction before it took place. This is likely a picture of the rapture. Then it goes into a story of Sodom and Gomorrah, pretty disgusting depravity stuff. Um, Lot is taken out. And uh, as Lot is removed, he is him and his family are told, don't look back as you're removed from the destruction. Don't look. And Lot's wife looks, and she becomes a pillar of salt, which leads me to one of my favorite visual jokes of all time. I really want a salt and pepper shaker that say Lot and Lot's wife. Because the joke is, guess which one is salt? Lot's wife. So I really like that. Uh, And then we get into another story of Abraham meeting, coming to another place with another king, and he is afraid, and he doesn't tell the king again that Sarah is his wife. But God protects Sarah through all of it, and it all kind of works out. And then Abraham is back with Sarah, and now Sarah is pregnant. And this is chapter 21. And this happens in verse 4. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, and God, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old, and when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, for I have borne him a son in his old age. Here's the difference. We found out Ishmael was circumcised at 13 years old, Isaac The promised one, the promised son, was circumcised at eight years old. God told Abraham that he would ensure the promise, the covenant promise that he made to Abraham, the unconditional covenant is always going to exist. But here's the sign of the covenant. The sign of the covenant is that you circumcise the male children at eight days old. So we know that Ishmael is not the promised son. He was circumcised at 13 years old. Isaac is the promised son, circumcised at eight years old, a sign of the covenant, the unconditional covenant, to Abraham. So Isaac is the one. The picture is getting narrower. It's not Ishmael. A whole nation of people is excluded from the Messiah. Now it's a descendant of Isaac. So the picture is getting clearer of who this Messiah will be. And since Isaac is the promised son, you come to chapter 22, one of the most interesting dives in typology ever. I don't know if we're going to make it to chapter 25. We're going to stop at the end of chapter 22, uh, and we'll pick up next week. But chapter 22, we're going to dive into it because you can't miss it. We just showed that Isaac is the promised son. This is what happens. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Good answer. Then he said, take now your son, your only son. So, God is speaking to the father, Abraham. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering, one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So he's taking him to the mountain range of Moriah. The mountain range of Moriah is in Jerusalem. It starts in the old city, in the city of David. But the elevation continues to get higher as you get to the Temple Mount. And then even further north, the peak of the the ridge of Moriah of this mountain range is just a little bit north of the Temple Mount, which also happens to just be Golgotha, the place of the skull, or more commonly known as Calvary. The place where Jesus was crucified was on the ridge of Mount Moriah at the peak on Golgotha. So that's where Abraham is telling him, telling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his only son. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and came and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place far off. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey And the lad and I, so Isaac and I, will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Look at Abraham's faith. Abraham is told to go sacrifice his son on the top of this mountain. And he tells his servants, we will come back. Abraham has been through enough at this point to know that God keeps his promises. His covenant with Abraham was unconditional. So he had faith to understand that they would both be coming back even if he sacrificed his son. So either he believed that God would do something in place of Isaac or that Isaac would be resurrected at the end of this. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. So Isaac is carrying the wood for his own sacrifice up the mountain where Jesus was crucified. What does that look like? Jesus carried his cross. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? He asked, Where is the lamb? That's important. Circle it. Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb. Again, lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. They came to a place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But, verse 11, if you got a highlighter, this is one you want to highlight. But the angel of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, called to him from heaven, and said, Abraham, Abraham. So the angel of the Lord, this is a very interesting phrase, because in the Old Testament, whenever you see this phrase, the angel of the Lord, A is capitalized, Lord is all capitalized, and the word the, this is the messenger of Yahweh. But he always speaks as though he's speaking directly for God, but he seems as though he's also separate from God. So most scholars think that whenever you see the angel of the Lord, it's actually a Christophany. This is Christ showing up physically in the Old Testament in person. So if that's the case, Jesus is the one who stops Abraham. And he shows up at the place where he will eventually be crucified. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for... Now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What does that sound like? Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a circlet ram, not a lamb, caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. The name of this place on this mountain is called the Lord Will Provide, meaning that it's still going to happen. We'll get to that in a second, but keep that in mind. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessings, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. So he stopped and he said, this is a place that I will call the Lord will provide. Now, here's the interesting thing. Abraham said, That there will be a lamb on that place that will cover what Isaac was meant to be sacrificed for. As they get there, a ram is provided, not a lamb. Why? Because 1,500 years later, an actual lamb, the lamb of God, John the Baptist called Jesus the lamb of God, and he was sacrificed on that very spot. So the Lord will provide, in future tense, he did provide a lamb. And he provided a lamb to be sacrificed on that spot on the ridge of Mount Moriah. But in the moment, instead of sacrificing Isaac, they sacrificed a ram. This is also very interesting. Because a ram, as we get into Leviticus, you'll find out, is used for the guilt offering. Sins you're not even aware of get covered in the guilt offering. And when you sacrifice a ram for the guilt offering, you sacrifice Even though you own the ram and you bring the ram to the priests to be sacrificed for your guilt, you actually pay the priests in silver what the ram is worth during the guilt offering. So Jesus, who was crucified for our sins, was paid for in silver by Judas, who threw the silver back at the temple, which 30 pieces of silver, and those 30 pieces of silver were prophesied by Zechariah, And he said that they would be thrown back to the potter. The 30 pieces of silver were thrown back at the temple, which paid for the sacrifice of Jesus as a guilt offering. And then they took the 30 pieces of silver, knowing they couldn't use it because it was blood money, and they bought a potter's field. So all of this paints an incredible picture of the Messiah in Genesis 22. And you have a partial fulfillment. We have the ram that points to Jesus, and then ultimately the Lamb of God, Jesus, is crucified on that very spot. So Isaac becomes a typology of Jesus. And we actually have a Christophany in the angel of the Lord showing up, and we have another typology in the ram. This section of scripture just screams at you who the Messiah is and what he's going to look like and what he's going to do. And so now we know, as the picture is getting narrowed, that he will be a descendant of Isaac. But now we also know from what Isaac went through, what the Messiah will look like in his actions in saving people by what Isaac was spared from on Mount Moriah in the same place. And so with that, we'll finish up next week, but we'll stop there and pray. Father God, thank you so much for your story Thank you so much for showing us through your scriptures from the very beginning all the way through, you are pointing out your plan and who the Savior is and what we should be looking for. And the answer keeps coming back, Jesus. So help us to have boldness of faith and to be encouraged by knowing that we serve Jesus, the Messiah, And through him, we have a relationship with you and give us the boldness as we know more about our faith to be able to share it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.